Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. You guys ever read an article and before you get to the end of the first paragraph, you've already sent it to someone because they need to see this article? Yeah, it's called Twitter. So the only, if it, only if it's about UFOs and then I send it to Shane. <laughs> so the other day, I see an article in the Washington Post entitled, Like Living in a War Zone, Washington Area Residents Say Increased Helicopter Traffic Is Giving Them Nightmares. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Don't encourage her. the land speed record on mailing this to Tammy, to which she responded in mere seconds <laughs> with the sentence, I feel completely seen. I feel seen. Thank you, Congress. I Thank- feel seen, too. <laughs> yeah, because I just want to point out that you guys are talking about low-flying helicopter, and Shane is back. And, you know, guys. Maybe he returned on a helicopter. Or a UFO. Hashtag Shane's back. Shane is back. Woohoo! Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the bitches back edition. <laughs> Yes! I have said bitch. Yes, that's right. I've been just waiting to say it. For two weeks, two weeks I've been away. Did you you miss us? I did miss you guys. I missed you a lot. I'm going to confess I did not listen to the podcast either week. That's okay because we were pathetic in your absence. No, 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 no. I mean, I said I read the titles. No, we had uh, had the whole acting edition thing. I saw that. That That was was very clever. We had had everybody everybody acting for everybody else. You were utterly shameless for two weeks. Yeah, two I like whole that. weeks. We just two wandered in the wilderness. Weeks. Are you tanned, rested, and ready? I am tanned and rested. I think I'm ready. I think I'm ready. Although it's kind of a weirdly quiet week right now for some reason by usual standards. Okay, <laughs> I'm sorry. What? I don't know. I, just, I have a very warped sense of like slow news week at this point because I'll say that to some people sometimes. Be like, oh, it feels like a slow news week. They're like, I'm sorry. Are you napping? <laughs> Like, what, what? I don't know. I guess if it's not like going like at a hundred. She is heavily medicated at this point. <laughs> it's fine. It's, it's nuclear exchanges. Right, it's right. A slow you guys, he called off the strike. <laughs> Call me when somebody bombs something. Um, we are all back together, you guys, here in the new jungle studio. It is me, Tamara Kaufman, what is Ben Wittes, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, everybody. Hi, welcome Shane. back. Hey, Thank Shane. you so much. It's good to be back. On the podcast this week, it's actually not that slow of a news week. Uh, President Trump prepares to strike Iran in retaliation for downing a U.S. drone, but says he pulled back to spare Iranian lives. We're going to talk about where we go from here. Uh, Former special counsel, former special counsel, I think that's the first time we've said that on the podcast, maybe. Robert Mueller is subpoenaed to testify to Congress. the first time you say your married name. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say it's speaking of the bitches back. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Not that bitch. The other bitch. Yeah. Uh, And the National Security Agency yet again says it improperly collected Americans' phone records. Um, Let's talk with the strike on Iran. So I was sitting here thinking like you guys must have talked about this last week, but it was only Thursday that this occurred and we thought you guys recorded on Wednesday. Um, But as everyone knows, but just to quickly catch up, uh, the president says he had ordered and was – Basically, it was ready to go. Uh, maybe cocked and loaded. Cocked and loaded, I believe, <laughs> was the. It's not a phrase, that's, by the that's way. That's totally a term. It's not a phrase, and it's also you know there are certain people who shouldn't be accidentally punning <laughs> <laughs> on cocked. Oh, come on, but let's <laughs> guys. That's right. Let's focus on what's really important about this. (laughs) Pick a different word, right? Uh, But basically says he was ready to do this in retaliation for the downing of that um, large surveillance drone by the Iranians and decided to pull back when his generals, one of the generals informed him that 150 people could die. So we won't rehash all of that because we've been going through the news cycle a couple of times. But Tammy, let's start with this. I mean – Clearly, the president does not want a confrontation. And I have to say, as as 
sort of strange, maybe we can talk about this as his recitation of the narrative was and how a lot of it didn't seem to add up about how these things went down. I guess it ultimately wasn't that surprising to me and maybe to other people too that he didn't ultimately do the strike because the president seems like he doesn't want a confrontation with Iran and he's been pretty clear about that. But it also doesn't seem like this has created any more openings for us to get off the path that we're on with Iran that seems to be somehow hurtling inevitably towards a conflict. So has this made it harder or do you see potential off-ramps here from the situation? So in a way, we this was an inevitable escalation, which isn't to elide the Iranians' responsibility for their own actions, whether it's blowing up tankers transiting the Gulf or shooting down a drone that, uh, according to the imagery that's been released, seems to have been in international waters. But I, I say it's inevitable because it's the inevitable result of a Trump administration policy that has been focused on pushing Tehran to the wall with pulling out of the JCPOA, the nuclear agreement, uh, imposing incredibly tough economic sanctions that really have had significant effects on the Iranian economy and not, you know, saying what it is that we want beyond, as we've discussed before on the show, this sort of 12 demands that Mike Pompeo laid out that are essentially like leave power, you know, turn into a different country. Right. And so the Trump administration has been ratcheting up pressure. The Iranians don't really have a clear way to respond except by escalating their own problematic behavior. And so um, this is the way that they are kind of demanding attention, demanding engagement is by escalating and threatening a, a military confrontation. So, you know, is this what Trump wanted? Does this give Trump an excuse to now find a diplomatic exit ramp that didn't exist before that his own strategy doesn't appear to have built in from the beginning. I think on the one hand, yes, there is a lot of pressure, including from American partners in the region, to find a diplomatic off-ramp. It's very clear that Israel does not want a, a military engagement with the Iranians right now. It fears that it would feel the fallout in terms of missiles from Hezbollah and Hamas. The Gulf Arab states do not want a military confrontation with Iran right now. They want to be able to keep selling oil out of the Gulf. They need it for their own economies. And so if nobody wants a war, because as you said, Trump doesn't want a war and the Iranians know that they're not going to prevail in a military conflict with the United States, why isn't there an off-ramp? I think the biggest problem here is that the administration can't articulate what it is it's looking for. And when Trump finally tried to do so the other day, he said, we just don't want Iran to have nuclear weapons. Well, that's why we had we this had that. Yeah. we had a multinational agreement to ensure exactly that, and that's what you threw out the window, buddy. So I think until the administration can do a better job of articulating its aims, it's going to be hard to build that off ramp. But I mean, building off what Tammy said, and, and I think that, that struck me too when the president said that the other day. You know, kind of going back to the situation before. I mean, okay, then why did you kick the deal out? I mean, it strikes me that there's still the risk for miscalculation on either side is extremely high in this, right? So as much as neither side knows what it wants, it doesn't seem like the risk of us fumbling into a conflict has actually diminished, no? I think that's right. And I actually don't think there's a – I don't think the only risk is fumbling into a conflict. I also think there's a risk of – I don't – know that there's a word for this, but machismoing into a conflict or, or, you know, a kind of one-upsmanship that, you know... We call it an escalatory ladder. Well, but no, no, I don't. So in a normal (laughs) escalatory ladder, side A takes a step that side B has to respond to. Or they look weak. Or they look weak. That's the machismo element. But no, no, but but I'm talking about something that's, I think, uniquely a little bit Trumpy, which is... He says a bunch of stuff. He doesn't mean any of it. And he doesn't think of it as more than just words, fire and fury. Uh, And so if Kim Jong-un then sends him a love letter, they're on good terms at that point. And so, you know, from his point of view, none of that actually means anything. And therefore, it's easy to de-escalate what would otherwise be an escalatory cycle. But with the Iranians, if you do that 10 times to 10 different bad actors, 
one of them is not going to send you a love letter. It's, it's going to take it, if not seriously, at least consider taking it seriously and it's going to blow up a tanker or is going to, you know, respond to your refusal to comply with the JCPOA by refusing to comply with the JCPOA himself. And by taking some concrete action or even simply just taking your rhetoric seriously in a way that you then have to respond to and even people who didn't support the underlying action have to take seriously. And that's a, a function, I think, of Trump, the, the, the interaction of Trump's personality with the dynamic of the escalatory cycle, which is that he triggers them without thinking about it and always believing that you can then just back out of it by sort of denying that the situation ever existed. It takes two to, to, to dance that particular tango. And, you know, Ayatollah Khamenei is not Kim Jong-un, who also has a, like, if I say something, it's true attitude. And so the two of them went from, you know, we'll, we'll kill you all, blow you all up, no fire and fury, no my button's bigger than your button, no my button's bigger than your button, to we send each other love letters like that. I don't think that works with Khamenei because he actually responds by blowing up tankers. And I do think Trump is ignoring the difference between the Iranians and the North Koreans. Speaking of, Susan, I mean, ignoring the difference, the, the president said in an interview today, I think it was with Fox Business News, he was talking about if we went to war, it wouldn't take long, and then said, I'm not talking about boots on the ground. I mean, it's been stated before, and <clears throat> it bears repeating here. A war with Iran would not be easy. It would not be swift. And by the way, simply conducting airstrikes on Iran is not going to solve any problem at all if what you're trying to do is you know, limit its ability to, to sow havoc in the region. But the president either doesn't seem to understand uh, how difficult the war would be or it seems to me is trying to make people believe that a conflict there – well, it would be easy, which also seems very much at odds with his stated position for years of not wanting to go into Iraq. He knows how hard that was. This is orders of magnitude more difficult. Yeah, I think he also said, I don't need an exit strategy, which was a little bit uh, strange. You know, like okay. if you're willing to announce withdrawals of troops via tweet, maybe you don't need an exit strategy. <laughs> exactly. That That is your exit right, strategy. Right. Actually, he doesn't even need the word exit in, in that sentence. I don't need a strategy. I don't need a strategy. Voila. That's true. It, it still works. Um, you know, look, the Iranians also responded by calling him, the, saying that the White House has become mentally handicapped. Yeah. Um, you know, so they're responding with their own sort of tough talk. I mean, a, a little bit, this is a, more of a question for Tammy than, than anything. But, you know, ordinarily, other paths of communication will grow. So, you know, when even whenever we have moments in which sort of the political levels are hurling insults at one another or there's sort of heightened rhetoric – you know, usually there is a back channel of communication, um, you know, either an explicit intentional one, you know, think of sort of the Russians during the Cold War, or, uh, you know, intermediary discussion, sort of some way of facilitating communication in situations in which neither side wants to inadvertently get drawn into this kind of conflict. You know, Secretary of State Pompeo is certainly a um, hawkish on Iran. Certainly John Bolton's not picking up the phone to make nice with anyone. You know, do you think that in some back room there actually is this sort of uh, safety valve channel? Is it out of the Pentagon? Or like, is this just all happening on Twitter in front of all of our eyes? And like, well, let's hope let's hope it doesn't go haywire. I, I think the administration is interested in having a back channel. I think they've basically signaled multiple times in multiple ways that they would like to have a conversation directly with the Iranian government. And so far, the Iranians haven't taken them up on it. In fact, the Japanese prime minister, Shinzo Abe, was in Iran when the mines blew up on the tankers. And he was there supposedly, uh, according to news reports, with a message from Donald Trump uh, and an offer to mediate between Iran and the United States. Pompeo, the hawk, actually said the other day that the U.S. has no preconditions for talking to Iran, despite the 12 demands that he laid out a year or so ago. So it's clear that they're interested, but they're, they're so bad at implementing. And as you note, they don't have any 
American side messengers who are credible, that it's not clear how to make that channel open up. You know, I think there are a couple possibilities here that I can see. One is that the Europeans, uh, who are also signatories to the JCPOA and have a lot at stake financially as well as diplomatically and in security terms, in keeping Iran from exceeding the enrichment limits in the JCPOA, which Iran has also threatened to do, um, that they may be able to step in and mediate. They would be credible interlocutors for the Iranians, I think. Whether they're credible interlocutors for Washington, that's a different question. The other possibility, I think, is that we've seen at previous moments when tensions with Iran are high in the region, when there's a lot of tension between Iran and Saudi Arabia, we've seen some back channels and ultimately some front channels open up diplomatically between Iran and the Arab states. And it's possible that one or more Arab states that have diplomatic relations with Iran could start a kind of regional dialogue that the United States wouldn't have to participate in, wouldn't have to take ownership of, but might benefit from. So I think those are two pathways. It's clear that Trump would rather do it directly. But again, he just can't seem to figure out how. And look, are the wag the dog accusations that Trump accused Obama of potentially starting a confrontation with Iran in order to win re-election, right, on the theory that all of Trump's tweets eventually uh, come back to haunt him? Um, is that the realm of conspiracy theorists? Like, is that just crazy to think that as we lead into, you know, the 2020 campaign, there are countervailing incentives contrary to his sort of isolationist tendencies and that he has expressed that he thinks sort of military conflict is, is politically advantageous. Is that crazy? You know, I don't think it makes sense, frankly. I think the Republican base pretty clearly doesn't want more war in the Middle East. I think members of Congress have made it clear to the White House that they don't want to be asked to vote on authorization for a war with Iran, although Mitch McConnell has now agreed to allow a vote on a piece of legislation related to that. So I think it's a domestic loser. And I think that's one reason why the president is sticking to his guns that he's refusing to fire. It may not be a domestic loser for the Iranians, though. So I actually, th you know, this is something I, I, I actually wrote on Lawfare on, on Friday. And, and I, I, I do think this is the area where we have seen the most sophistication and complexity in Trump's thought. And it is precisely the area where he's like people are ridiculing him, which, you know, he deserves the ridicule because he expresses himself so, so abysmally. But I actually think his thought here is pretty complicated that, you know, he has surrounded himself with people who seem to want a war with Iran and who are real hawks on this. He is not. And he is thinking about the limitations of their approach on a very regular basis. And that tweet thread that he is mocked for is actually a reflection of that. What is that? tweet thread say, which is, hey, you know, I had a recommendation in front of me to go forward with a, you know, attack that based on a, a shoot down of an unmanned aerial vehicle. I asked what the casualty count would be. It was unreasonably high. And I thought, hey, let's see if we can do this through a combination of economic sanctions and military force in the background. That is unusually sophisticated thinking for Donald Trump, that he's, he's not leading with military options and with belligerence, though he sometimes is with his rhetoric. He's saying, and I, I actually want to give him credit for this, he's saying, let's focus on the tools that are uh, not going to bring us into war, which are the economic warfare tools. Let's hold the military stuff in reserve and let's not overreact to relatively non to non-lethal incidents. And I actually, you know, can't think of another example where Trump has layered that many different ideas in a complex foreign policy issue and hasn't resorted to magical thinking. And so I, I actually think he deserves a, you know, I don't want to overstate <laughs> it, but I think he deserves a little bit of credit 
relative if only to himself. I I think that last line, Ben, gets to the heart of it, which is that the only reason that he has to have a layered response to anything is that he created a crisis in the interactions between the United States and Iran by unilaterally pulling the U.S. out of this multilateral agreement that the Iranians were abiding by. And even, you know, until for a full year after he withdrew, the Iranians continued to abide by it. Now they are threatening to exceed its bounds. But but he's the one who created this crisis. He's the one who necessitated escalatory steps. And so I think the Iranians are saying, OK, you've pushed us up against the wall. Before we're willing to talk to you, we're going to push back. And so the challenge is not how restrained he can be. The challenge is, can he absorb a little pushback and create an opportunity for negotiation? Yeah, just to be clear, my point is neither about the underlying policy, which I think is absurd, nor is it about the restraint. It's about the quality of his argumentation. And normally he resolves all complexity by saying, we'll have great deals. We'll build the wall and Mexico will pay for it. We'll replace the Iran deal with a better deal. Repeal and replace Obamacare, right? He With just this kind of magic. And here he was layering one on top of one another considerations. But he was also pretty clearly not being honest about how – what information he had. You're asking for how, too much now. So but, right, you, you right, want so honesty and complexity. We're in, a, we're in a fictitious world and so like I, I award him no points on the theory that he's not telling the truth and therefore we can't um, assess so his thinking by ordinary metrics. I think you ascribed to the stopped clock theory. <laughs> <laughs> be fair to the president. Give him a little bit of points for something. And after that long tweet thread about how many things you agree with the president about. I believe him. Or believe the president. That was good. People should go check that out. Yeah, that's going to be one of my object lessons. Oh, is it? You just scooped it. Well, I'm sorry. I didn't jump the gun. We'll edit that out later maybe. No, we won't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Moving on. Uh, Robert Mueller, you remember him. The bitch is back. The bitch is back. The bitch is going to the hill. <laughs> uh, it was announced last night uh, that a subpoena has been issued. He's going to get – is it is appearing before House Judiciary Two and back Intel? Two back-to-back hearings. Right, two yes. back-to-back hearings. And his staff will be meeting privately with Hipsy. Right. So back-to-back hearings. Ben, obviously, he, I, think, I think even Adam Schiff described this maybe as like not a friendly subpoena. And Bob Mueller had made it clear before, as we've said on the podcast, that he didn't want to testify. So he, you know, he's got a subpoena compelling his, his appearance. I, I feel like this could, I, this could go one of two ways. This could either be a very underwhelming performance – um, and that if we – It's definitely not going to be Annette Benning the other night. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's not going to be a, a dramatic reading of the Mueller report that occurred with her and John Lithgow and others. And that if we made it a drinking game, you know, every time he said, read my report, we'd be under the table in half an hour. Or it could be an amazing kind of pivotal spectacle if what ends up happening is the former FBI director, the former special counsel, this man to whom, you know, for – probably half the country, a kind of mythic status has been attached, goes up there and simply recites the damning findings that are in his report. And it's the first time that millions of people have heard it and it's being uttered from the horse's mouth, as it were, live on national television. So, I mean, do you think that those are like the two viable outcomes here? And and which one do you think is more likely? Or is there a third? Well, so I think the, the, the third is anywhere in between, okay. right? And but maybe tilting one towards, you know, look, snooze versus uh, blockbuster. I think where you are on the spectrum between snooze and blockbuster almost entirely depends on the quality of the questions that he gets. Because he's he's pretty clearly laid out his principle, which is he's not going to go further then he's not going to explicate the report. He's not going to do their work for them. And so if you are the committee, your goal, I think, has to be to get him in his own words in a live televised setting to tell the story behind the report. That may mean adding very little new information or even no new information. So can you give him questions that will cause him to tell the story that he told in the report. Now, there's a few ways to do that. One is, Mr. Mueller, can you read what you wrote on paragraph three, page 36? He reads it. Is that your, was that your view when you wrote the report? 
Yes. Is that your view today? Yes, right? And you do that for five hours, right? And you get him to tell a lot of the story simply by reading the report. The other possibility is to do it in a slightly more free form. And part of that will depend on how cooperative Bob Mueller is. The danger, and I think it's a real danger, is that actually most members of Congress like the sound of their own voices much more than they like the sound of the witnesses' voices. And they don't understand that having Bob Mueller up there telling the story of the report is a major, major news event. Wait, ha- isn't that the whole reason that they want to have this hearing? Well, yes, but in insofar as that's the case, that's what we call a conflict of interest. And like, the, you know, to the extent that that individual members of Congress want to hector Bob Mueller for use, using the five-minute rule, hector him for five minutes and then say, isn't that right, Mr. Mueller? Or do you agree, Mr. Mueller, at the end? And Bob Mueller says, I, I cannot go further than is in my report. I don't address that question in my report. Go fuck yourself. I think might that- He might not say the last He might part. not, he, but he'll mean it. But he'll think it. it's late it. in um, the day. Uh, you know, I think to the extent that that's what happens, it's going to be a very boring day. So- the question is, how disciplined can the committee be in framing questions that he can A, actually answer, and that B, illuminate the material that he's reporting? I feel like we shouldn't have high hopes for that based on past experience. I, I don't. So I think it's both a question of how disciplined Democrats can be and whether or not they're capable of playing a team sport. Because if they each sort of go in there with their own pet thing and it's this unwieldy thing where you have Republicans popping in to ask about, aren't you all a bunch of un- angry Democrats sort of that's going to be interrupted? in the flow, you know, can they coordinate on having a plan to ask questions? You know, honestly, the dumbest possible thing the Democrats could do is get in there and start badgering him about why didn't you reach a conclusion on obstruction of justice, even spending a lot of time trying to get him to say something bad about Bill Barr and whether or not Bill, you know, Bill Barr's characterization. You know, Robert Mueller's public testimony is a precious, limited natural resource. And so I have basically a zero confidence that House Democrats aren't going to fundamentally squander it. That said, I I do think that there is real opportunities here that go beyond just having him sort of read the report. So obviously, uh, you do want him to sort of confirm and, and sort of draw out the factual richness. I also think it's worth having him explain with specificity based on incidents, when is he saying that there was insufficient evidence to sustain a criminal charge versus when was he saying they found no evidence to support a particular proposition. Those are really significant differences and distinctions. And actually, there are areas in which the report is, I won't say ambiguous, but requires a lot of parsing to understand what is he saying? And does he, you know, are there areas in which Congress has a separate, uh, you know, obligation to sort of conduct investigations? You know, does he feel as though there were unanswered questions that his that his team couldn't actually come to conclusions about? Were there any moments in which he felt that there were outside, you know, that he that there was sort of uh, effective obstruction of justice? Um, you know, I think that's going to be the area in which, you know, a, a well planned hearing in which Democrats are listening to one another and are listening, and listening to the to answer him. and listening yes. to him and developing new information and and sort of trusting that 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 actually. There's a there's a huge, massive opportunity if instead they're trying to badger him and criticize him for what he's done and trying to get him to go further. That's a huge waste of time and incredible temptation to trying to elicit new information that, that they know he's not going to go beyond. There's I, I can see members telling themselves, you know, even getting him to refuse to answer the question is going to focus people's attention on that. There are plenty of ways to to sort of to to get attention on that, and I think that would be a serious waste of time. But it's going to be some compelling freaking shit. 
Well, so that's precisely my question. I mean, you said that this testimony is a scarce national resource. And I think that there's still an expectation somehow that this will be the politically transformative moment. This will be the tipping point that having his voice and face, as you said, Shane, with all that credibility, you know, that Mythic status. Yeah, that mythic status. Gravitas. Right. Somehow that's going to turn the tide for the Democrats and the American public is going to all of a sudden care about this more than they apparently do. And that all of a sudden the wave will crest in favor of impeachment or resignation. And I just think that's a ridiculous expectation. Most of the country has moved on, fairly or unfairly. So I would agree with you, Susan, that there are some areas where clarification could help to illustrate the ways in which those around the president, if not the president himself, have sought to obscure and obstruct and hide um, behavior that might otherwise make them vulnerable to criminal or other sanction. That's useful. It's use and it's intellectually important, and it's important for those of us who care about what we need to do to repair the rule of law in the future. But politically, I honestly don't think this is going to change anything. It's maybe going to give a couple of Democrats uh, video clips for their reelection ads. So I I disagree with that a little bit. So you say that you know the public has moved on. In some sense, the public has moved on because the House Democrats have been dithering for weeks and weeks and refusing to commit to a strategy and doing this sort of dancing around the edges game. I do think, I don't think that Robert Mueller is going to say something and everyone's going to go, he did what? And that's going to be the transformative thing. It's that this is your last shot. Either this is a moment to get the public attention. If you are going to take it seriously moving forward, this is the moment to do it. And that if what they do is say, we are only going to to uh, to take this as a moment to now you know either move towards an impeachment inquiry or, or actually substantively move forward if suddenly this is the tipping point that changes public opinion then that's certainly not going to happen if instead they're going to say this was the moment to have the courage of our convictions to make a decision are we going to hold this person accountable or not, because it is – there are two doors, friends, who've been following along since the beginning of this saga. <laughs> yeah, I wonder where you got that myth. <laughs> <laughs> the myth that there's some other mechanism by which they're going to hold him accountable and, you know, censure him and then they're going to win, you know, the election, that is far from a given at this point. And so I, I do think it's – it is the, the moment of truth even if Mueller is not the transformative factor. Okay, I want to bring this back down to brass tacks for a minute because Susan said something before that I think is really important. And, you know, everybody's thinking of the, about this in a kind of binary sense of can you get Mueller to go beyond what's in the report? And, you know, can you get him to say, yeah, of course I think it was, you know, that that sort of, Jack Nicholson moment. Yeah, I, of course I ordered the code red, right? I definitely um, would have indicted him if not for the OLC. Right. right. Like, <laughs> right. Dream on. That's not going to happen. But here's what could happen if you design questions right. And Susan alluded to it earlier. Somebody could say to him, Mr. Mueller, you use a lot of phrases for there being insufficient evidence to um, bring a case. Sometimes you s- describe there being uh, we did not develop evidence. Sometimes you say we did not establish. Sometimes you say we did not establish sufficient evidence, right? I'm I'm actually losing the specific words that he uses. He uses a variety of different formulations. Uh, this is what staff is for. They assemble them all, right? And you read them to him and you say, can you walk us through What are the circumstances in which you use each of these? When do you use the phrase, we did not develop evidence that? When do you use the phrase, we did not establish that? So then when he explains that, you say to him, so Mr. Mueller, when you say in your report on page 436 that you did not establish evidence of collusion, is it fair of us to infer that you are not saying there was no evidence Right. That's a conversation he can have. And 
that is a really important conversation for people's understandings of the results of that report. One last thing I'll just pause on for a second. I do think there's also peril for Republicans here insofar as if Devin Nunes tries to get Robert Mueller to confirm some of the you know, wilder conspiracy theories such as you know, Joseph Mifsud was secretly a CIA agent trying to entrap George Papadopoulos, da, 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 da. I mean, but he might not engage on those things as well, but it might be potentially embarrassing for some Republicans who are trying to essentially say this entire report, this entire investigation was some kind of fruit of the poison tree and was concocted by angry Democrats and people with conflicts of interest because of golf club memberships. That could potentially blow up in their face too. I will say I do think that bias among his team is obviously going to be you know, a major line of attack sure. for Republicans. And I will say and that- And he may actually comment on that. Right. And, and I, I mean, will say yeah. that Andrew Weitzman's decision to leave the special counsel's office and write a book about his experience is going to put Robert Mueller in a very difficult position and that uh, as much as that team has conducted itself with uh, with a lot of integrity throughout, I, I do think it's worth noting how unusual and potentially quite problematic that decision is going to be because, man, does it look like somebody trying to monetize their government service in exactly the kind of ways that we have criticized. Now, obviously, lots of officials leave the government, but going to write the story of an investigation is... The timing is not ideal on that. I'm sure he'll give all of his very small advance to charity. Okay. <laughs> How do you segue out of that one? I mean, I'm going to read that book. <laughs> no, I'm totally going to read it. My God, it's good. We're all I can't talk wait to read podcast. it. I'm just <laughs> shaking my if head. Mr. Weissman wants to come on the Lawfare podcast <laughs> and talk about his book, yet. we will even tweet the link to the Amazon <laughs> sure. link. Um, No segue for this, but I guess we put this under the heading of uh, NSA. Did you again collect too many American phone records? There you go again. It's like my favorite line from what my actual favorite movie is, Red Red October. Yeah. Where he says, did you lose another submarine? Did you collect on Americans again by accident, Susan? <laughs> <laughs> Me personally? Yeah. Susan, your friends over at Fort Meade. Um, I'll just read quickly from our coverage of this this morning. This this came, by the way, from a FOIA request. Uh, maybe or actually, I think it was a FOIA lawsuit from the ACLU. Uh, my colleague, Ellen Nakashima, writes, The NSA purged millions of Americans' phone records after learning that some of the data was collected in error last fall as part of a controversial counterterrorism program, according to documents that were made public Wednesday. It was the second such instance of overcollection and helped lead to the agency's decision, which it still is not publicly acknowledged, to shutter the program earlier this year. So, Susan, basically what this is saying is there was this nine-day period between October 3rd and 12th where the NSA obtained an unidentified phone company provided the agency with records that it was not supposed to receive, and these were records related to terrorism suspects. And then the agency assessed that the impact was limited because there was quick identification and a purge process and then a lack of reporting on any of the information. But it still shows it's kind of it's been, as Ellen writes, this final straw of sorts that led the agency to suspend the program. So can you just put this in context for us? This has happened before. How concerned should people be about this? And, and what does it say about the operational effectiveness of this program? So the idea that like this has happened before and then it happened again. And this I, is, by this the way, is the not... program that Snowden exposed collecting metadata on phone records, not the content of calls. Sorry. Right. So this is not new news. What this is is a revelation that – an error that we already knew occurred actually occurred more than once in the time period, right? So it's it's not um, uh, this isn't a new thing. If, if anything, it's sort of a minor revelation that um, that the issue was more widespread than had been sort of known at that time. You know, essentially, look under the USA Freedom Act, uh, business records and, and call records that used to be housed at NSA are now housed at the at the phone providers, and there is uh, a process by which the agency requests. You know, they basically, you know, with a with a judge's sign off, uh, send a request to phone companies for information related to particular numbers. Whenever they've met the uh, the appropriate standard of, of that the FISA court asks for under the USA Freedom Act, and then the phone companies return all of the records, right? And you're not talking about one record; you're talking about a set of records related to a phone number. And so it appears that because of a technical design error on the part of the phone companies, whenever NSA 
made that request, the phone companies returned records that NSA had not asked for and was not authorized to receive. It took the agency a period of time to understand that they were getting records that were actually not responsive to what they had requested. Now, that's a serious and significant compliance incident. It's important. It needs to be reported. It needs to be taken seriously. Another word for compliance incident is compliance success. In very, very complex systems, errors occur. When you are able to identify that error, correct that error, and report that error, that is exactly what you want to see in these kinds of systems. And so, look, we, we are going back to the same discussion we had um, whenever the agency announced that it was sort of temporarily or, or for, the, for the meantime shutting down this program, which is whether or not it should exist at all. So NSA for a long time has, uh, you know, publicly and internally been mulling whether or not this program is worthwhile. Now, that doesn't, that's been sort of conflated in the civil liberties community by C, even the NSA admits it had no value. Now, saying a, a program is worth it or not is not saying a program has no value. As you increase the compliance burden, either by uh, the, the technical burden of compliance or the, or the legal burden of compliance, that makes it harder to get information. And so you have to assess the value of the information against how hard it is to get it. Now, that doesn't mean that putting those burdens are inappropriate, right? That's we should. That's an important decision we make about how hard we want to make it for uh, for the intelligence community and, and U.S. government in general to collect certain pieces of information. But it does mean that the decision that look, we the cost of technically complying is higher than we had anticipated. We aren't confident we can do this right. We've had these two incidents now, and so we're going to pause the program. That's not the same as conceding that this was valueless. The sort of favorite talking point that it's never been used to thwart a terrorist attack, that's something that you would like – You intelligence collection is not like an episode of 24 where there's the one thing and that's the piece of evidence and you run down the hallway and stop a terrorist attack. It's like any other investigation. There are pieces of evidence. This program produced pieces of evidence. Was it the but-for uh, cause of preventing a major attack? No, right? That that's clearly not the case. But these are just these are more nuanced questions. The question now moving forward is: This program is set to expire at the end of the year. NSA has voluntarily stopped this form of collection, and so now what the government and Congress have to what, what the executive branch and Congress have to decide is whether or not to pursue a clean reauthorization by which they leave the authorization on the books, such that if in, on some future date there's some technological change or the security situation changes such that they feel that they they want the program is worthwhile, they can restart it. Or if instead you don't want to leave sort of a, a vestigial law on the books just in case the agency wants it at some time in the future, and so you want to remove it in order to, to reauthorize the other surveillance authorities. The White House has sent some mixed messages on the topic right now. We haven't had a lot of clarity from Congress. This is certainly going to add fuel to calls for just get rid of it. Can I ask a clarifying question about this? Like, is this really a compliance incident at all? If you have a program that authorizes you to ask for X from Shane and I ask for X from Shane under this program and Shane produces 3X instead and I don't notice that he's given me a box containing three times what I asked for for a few months and when I notice, I give it back. Did NSA really even do anything wrong there or did they merely receive the information, not notice that they had uh, – that there was uh, more than they should get and give the stuff back when they noticed? But they're not so, supposed to have it at all, but right? I, 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 the consequences I sort of reject, you're saying were basically minimal to none. But I, I, don't, I don't think that's the wrong framing. Both are true. The agency didn't appear to do anything wrong in this case. Like they could have designed a system that would have caught this error sooner uh, or, or not have made the mistake in the first instance. But it's both not that NSA did anything wrong in the sense of abusive or intentional, and also that 
it's a it's a compliance incident. It is a serious matter for an intelligence agency to have information about American citizens or anyone else, which it is not lawfully authorized to have. And so I do think it's important that the agency not let itself off the hook by saying, well, you know, we no didn't harm, really no mean foul. to do it. Yeah. No harm, no foul. No, you if you are operating under a lawfully authorized program, you better make damn sure that you are staying within the bounds of that authorization. I just think it's the telecom company that has the compliance <laughs> interest. Well, but I incident. think that's actually – I mean reading the the article about this to me was revealing because it strikes me that you know Susan's point is that the agency is supposed to have procedures and convey to the providers of information procedures that will only get them what they're allowed to have and that that's gotten harder and harder both because the telecom companies are doing things differently and because each time the agency has tried to put into place a a sifting process, it makes the data collection and transfer even harder. So it it seems like it even makes the likelihood of a screw-up higher. I I mean, there's a little bit of sort of – I don't know if chicken and the egg is the right way to think about it. So – the way that the agency could ensure that the telecom providers are are complying with all the procedures correctly is to be in the telecom provider systems. The whole point of this is to not have the NSA in the telecom provider systems. And so it's sort of like, well, you could get NSA to be more closely monitoring what the phone providers are doing on their end, but then we're going to have to have a whole set of procedures for how you handle information that you're going to collect in that. And so, you know, it, it's, there's a little bit of this sort of question of, of who ultimately has accountability and responsibility. You know, look, I think a process by which there there was an error, it was identified, there was a rational decision here that it was not worth it to continue, that the right thing to do was to end this program. I think the question of whether or not you should leave the law on the books is a, is a difficult one. It's I don't think it's being fairly represented by the NSA as critics, but I actually think it is a hard question on on its merits of whether or not this is the kind of thing that you know, you shouldn't have laws like this until you are confident you're, you can comply, you know, with the mandate of the law, not some sort of aspirational, well, maybe someday we'll get there. Yeah. It, I mean, look, we have this pendulum swing that we've had ever since 9-11 and probably even before in terms of, you know, to what extent are the elected officials who are, you know, passing these laws willing to to uh, remove the the opportunity for NSA to, you know, that 0.001 percent chance that they're going to find the piece of information that that uh, stops a ticking bomb, you know, scenario. And so we may feel like the American public's in a place right now where, you know, the the benefits of this program or even the hypothetical benefits of this program are too small to justify the potential abuses. But I still think that when push comes to shove, it's going to be really hard for members of Congress to vote to kill this thing. I agree with you, Susan, too, that I mean, we have to have laws governing what intelligence agencies can collect and they have to adhere to them even if the consequences of failing to do so for a nine-day period are effectively harmless. It also strikes me that at a time when Facebook and other social media companies are shoveling off gigantic amounts of personal private data to shadowy companies who are using it to target them and their platforms are being manipulated by intelligence agencies who want to harm our democratic process and yeah, undermine the country. NSA really this the seems problem? quaint, right? <laughs> and like Facebook could take a lesson from NSA on what a compliance architecture actually looks like. Oh, yeah, big I mean, time. I'm not arguing against having a serious compliance program at NSA. Don't get me wrong. My point is that when we when we frame this as an NSA compliance issue, it makes it sound like NSA went out and got material that it wasn't allowed to Yeah, like to maliciously, have. knowingly went out and, and exceeded its authority. Right. And what right, happened right, here right. was rather NSA asked for stuff that it was allowed to have. And the company it received gave it stuff it that it was yeah. not allowed to have. And it took a little while to figure it out. I mean, have you and, ever tried to deal with your phone company to get your records? I mean, they sent me right. your records last time I talked to them. <laughs> there you go. It's absolutely crazy. Um, let's move on to object lessons. Tammy, you want to go first? Yeah, I would be happy to go first. So yesterday was a big day for the field of national security. Why? Uh, because we welcomed a new organization to the field, the Leadership Council for Women in National Security, which is a group that has been 
in the works for, wow, close to two years, a group of senior women in the field who served in government roles and at think tanks um, were kind of brainstorming ways that we could boost more women into senior jobs. And so this organization is the result of that brainstorming. Our first initiative uh, launched yesterday was a request to presidential candidates asking them to sign a pledge that if they win, they will seek gender parity in their appointments in the national security field. And I'm happy to say that 15 presidential candidates have signed on to the pledge, including six of the folks who are going to be on the debate stage tonight. If you want to know more, if you want to know which presidential candidates have signed or not yet signed the pledge and find out more about the Leadership Council and who's involved and how you can get involved, take a look at www.lcwins.org. And um, it's it's an exciting day. Awesome. Uh, ben? I have two object lessons. The first is a uh, tweet thread that I wrote impetuously last night, um, which was a kind of homage to Michael Kelly, the former editor of The Atlantic uh, and Washington Post columnist who uh, died in, in, a, in a, a Humvee accident in Iraq. Uh, and Michael during became quite the uh, opponent of Bill Clinton in the latter years of the Clinton presidency and at one point wrote a truly brilliant Washington Post column that was just composed entirely of sentences of things that the president and his top aides had said that Michael Kelly repeated with the words, I believe, in front of them. And it started, I believe the president, I have always believed him. And it ended, I believe that the Washington Post, the New York Times, ABC, CBS, uh, CNN, and NPR are all part of a vast right-wing conspiracy, especially NPR. And so a few a while ago, I tried to do the same thing with Donald Trump and just, you know, listing all the things he has asked us to believe. And it is much longer than Michael Kelly's column, I want to say. The things that we are being asked to believe are much less believable than the things we were being asked to believe about from Bill Clinton. And they are much more outrageous. And so I wrote it originally as a column on lawfare. But uh, last night, um, because Politico had written this story about Republicans believing the president, I decided to break it up into a Twitter thread, expand it dramatically, and uh, tweet it out as a thread. And of course, the one thing happened that I was completely not expecting, which is large numbers of people believing that I believed the president. <laughs> it took you literally to, and not to, seriously. Exactly. And <laughs> Very large numbers of people are angry at me today for believing the president about all sorts of things on which I, in fact, don't believe you're the president. You're sort of a Trump convert. Yeah, you're exactly. Just, you're feeding the Did not see that coming. I read right. yeah. MAGA conversion. And so I, I just want to say to everybody, here's how you read a tweet thread, OK? You start at the beginning. <laughs> you're asking too much already. You go through it in order – and get to the end at the end. So the part where I say I believe Donald Trump will make America great again, that's at the end. And you should read the rest of it before Outrageous. You get to, just saying. <laughs> All right. Here's my other object lesson. One of my absolute favorite Twitter threads for ever has been the Twitter thread at Crime A Day, which if you don't follow, you need to follow because – at Crime A Day tweets one outrageous pattern of conduct per day that violates some federal criminal law. And it's always funny. It's always peculiar. And he's a very witty guy. And uh, he has now written a book. He turns out to have a name, which is not Crime A Day. It's Mike Chase. And his book is entitled How to Become a Federal Criminal, an <laughs> Illustrated Handbook for the Aspiring Offender. And it is hilarious. And I am super excited that Mike Chase, which is to say AKA at Crime A Day, is coming to Brookings tomorrow to be my guest on the Lawfare podcast. And so buy the book, 
follow the at crime a day Twitter feed and you can hear Mike Chase being funny about federal criminal law on on the Lawfare podcast sometime soon. Uh, I'll go next. Um, listeners know that I occasionally like to tell you about things that I'm watching on TV or films that I've seen. Uh, I'm actually going to talk about something that I've just started watching and there's only one episode available. So I'm going to take a chance on this uh, and recommend it to you. But it's this new HBO series called Years and Years. Uh, and it uh, follows this um, family very not unlike you know the modern family family. It's like it's very diverse. There's some gay people, some straight people. It's really cool. Um, in a world in which Donald Trump – they're in Manchester, England by the way. Donald Trump wins re-election. And there is a sort of rising populist figure in the UK played by Emma Thompson, who is fabulous and everything. And as best I can tell, it's basically like if Modern Family met our political moment and then an actual apocalypse apparently happens. I don't entirely know where this show is heading. I think it's going to cast like way into the future I think is the premise and follow this family as sort of – politics consumes us in the current moment. But what I really love about it is every character in this show sort of stands in for somebody that you know in your life and their views on politics. There's sort of the, the strident leftist. There's the very far person on the right that's kind of a populist. There's the person who thinks that the rising populist is funny and kind of a caricature. What about the who person who believes in UFOs? Uh, I, we haven't gotten there yet, but I bet you one of these characters <laughs> would. Uh, you've got like you know the teenagers who are obsessed with technology and are getting lost in it and their parents who want to support them but I think it's polluting their minds. And it's, it's, it's very interesting how in the first episode, they kind of have called out a bullet point for basically every person that exists in your sort of political and cultural matrix of the moment and they've thrown them all together in this one family. It's really smart uh, and it's funny and it seems kind of of the moment in a way that like a lot of shows that try to be of the current moment ended up being like really ham-handed or like very tendentious and argumentative. This one kind of seems like it's throwing all of these people into one big drama and is trying to tell a story out of it and doesn't – I mean, you know, it's not entirely taking a position. It's a little bit maybe slanted towards one side, but um, – But does it make you It's laugh? kind of exposing and skewering everyone. Oh, it's hilarious. Yeah, and it like, sounds hilarious. Jay. It's actually <laughs> yeah. funny and incredibly like, tense. Just um, more reality than I can take, laugh, yeah. Ryan. <laughs> yeah, so like I said, I mean this could end up being a big train wreck, but years and years, check it out. I'm, I'm, I'm down. Uh, Susan. All right. I have an object. It is in this room. It is Matthew Kahn. This is his final day being our audio engineer for Rational Security oh. because Friday is his last day at Lawfare. I'm not looking at him because I'm going to start crying. Saying um, so. Matt is moving on to law school, not just any law school, but Harvard Law School where other Heard of it. very dignified uh, you know, national security voices have gone, obviously, in addition to being an excellent uh, Rational Security audio engineer over these many years. Um, he has been the world's best RA and associate editor of Lawfare. I tried very hard to prevent this from happening, or at least came who up wants with to go to Harvard Law School Seriously. to see... That's got to make some money. <laughs> if I could somehow conscript him long term, uh, apparently the Third <laughs> Amendment bans this or something. Um, but we are really going to miss you, and uh, yeah. just want to add that Rational security listeners in particular owe Matt Kahn a debt of gratitude, which is that the new Jungle Studio is almost entirely a creation of Matt Kahn. It's your lasting and, legacy. And so right. if you – This is it. You peaked. If you appreciate <laughs> – It's the Kahn room. Welcome, Matt. If you, the listener, appreciate the, the, the audio quality of rational security, the fact that our voices don't – fade out anymore, the fact that low-flying helicopters, notwithstanding Tammy's obsession with the subject, <laughs> do not interfere with the sound of rational security. If you appreciate that, tweet some thanks to Matt Kahn. Yeah. Hashtag thanks, Matt. Thanks, Matt. <laughs> thanks, Matt. In the Matthew Kahn Memorial Studio. <laughs> We're not killing him. <laughs> this is like, I'll let him live. Uh, well, that brings us to the end of the podcast, you guys. Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can buy hats, um, iPhone covers, um, I don't know, baby grows, Matthew Kahn t-shirts <laughs> at the Lawfare store by mattcon.com. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Matt has threatened to produce before he entirely turns into a pumpkin rational security and lawfare glassware for, the, for, the, for the lawfare store. You can drink your scotch in our You can finally drink out of something glasses. clean for once. That would be lovely. <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook whenever you download the podcast. Please remember to be sure and leave a rating and review. It really helps us out. Our audio engineer this week for the last time is Matt Harvard Khan. Our show is produced by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Bob Muller with his Elton John-inspired single, The Bitch Says Read My Report. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome if he just sat there the whole time and says, Muller says read the report and just referred to himself in the third person. Be great. Sophia Yam would love it. On behalf of my good friend Smart Hoffman Wittes, Ben Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.